this summer in the book of Leviticus. This is great, isn't it, right? Um, because we go to the Old Testament every summer, and we're kind of working through the Torah. So Genesis two years ago, Leviticus, or Exodus last year, Leviticus this year. And it's this, this strange book, right, with a lot of laws and rules and, and rituals. And it begins, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. The word called there is vaikra. Say vaikra. And that's the, the Jewish name for the book of Leviticus, which is about this pivotal moment in the life of the story of God when God brings the people out of Egypt, liberates them, takes them to the wilderness, and um, they figure out they've been slaves for so long they don't know how to be free. They can't think that way. And at the same time, they're estranged from God. And so the, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, are about reconnecting the people to God. And, it, and it's very, it's, it's revolutionary, really, the whole Torah is. It's, you know, history is usually writ, written by the people who, who win. And it's usually about how they conquered in the name of their gods. But um, the, the children of Israel didn't conquer anybody. <laughs> they got lucky at the, at the Red Sea, right? Um, and, and there's just a bunch of underdogs and slaves. And, and it's about their God who liberates, right? And this God has no interest in keeping the, the structures and orders of Egypt intact. And, and to that end, God has shown up here at the center of the Hebrew camp where there is this mishkan, this tent of meeting or tabernacle. Every, every army had one of these where they'd seek their God's help. And the children of Israel have this problem that they're afraid to go near the tent. Even Moses won't go in, in, in the tent. And this is the central reason for, for the book of Le Leviticus, or at least one of them. God's presence is a crisis for the people of God. Because God is kadosh. Say kadosh. Yeah, that means, that means holy, set apart, not like the other gods, in a different category of being. So, so Leviticus, in Leviticus, Yahweh, what, what God does is come to be among the people and then uses their culture, ancient Near Eastern ritual symbolism, to draw people out to come near to God and then to um, teach them who God is and who they are as human beings. And the way God does this is by borrowing or kind of working with the rituals and, and structures of their culture, um, from religious rituals like sacrifices, offerings, to just like the common, mundane, ordinary things they do each day. God changes the way that they do things just a few degrees, to teach them a new way to navigate their life. And it becomes kind of a wax on, wax off type of deal. You guys know this? You know what I'm talking about, Karate Kid? Did you know Karate Kid is almost 40 years old? That's, I know, that just seems wrong, doesn't it? Um, but Daniel-san, you know, he, he thinks he's just waxing a car or painting a fence, but what he's really doing, doing is learning the movements of karate, right? That's the wax on, wax off thing. So the, the whole book of Exodus is a wax on, wax off type of deal. God gives them these detailed rituals to structure the way they relate to God and self and other in creation so that over time this will shape their imagination and character and how they see and relate to everything um, the, whole, the whole time. In, in their life. And so they, they think that they're learning how to order their worship, but they're really learning how to order their entire lives. And they think that they're really learning how to approach God in relationship, but they're really learning how to approach every relationship in their lives. 
And the whole goal of it all, kind of the center of it all, if you remember, is atonement, which is a Franken word, a made-up word, at one month. This reconciliation that God's accomplishing by drawing this one people, the Hebrew people, drawing them near, teaching them a new um, set of habits for how to relate to God and self and other and the world. And through this, to become more fully human than any other people. And to begin to experience shalom, the world rightly ordered and at peace. And so Leviticus begins. The Lord Vaikra called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, speak to the Israelite people, um, that is B'nai Israel, B'nai um, children of Israel. So they're not yet a nation, they're just this family, but, um, children of uh, Jacob, who was renamed Israel. And what follows then are these seven chapters um, of detailed instructions on how to make offerings at the tent of meeting. And there are, there are five offerings here in the first five chapters. And then chapters six and seven are kind of re, a review of the procedures for the priests. I want to just give you kind of a quick sketch of, of the first five chapters here. So chapter one is about an offering called the Ola. This is a burnt offering. Chapter two is the Misha, a grain offering. Chapter three is the Shalamim. This is a, a fellowship offering. It was a meal. It was a shared communal meal. Chapter four is the Hatat, a sin offering. And chapter five, um, the Asham, a guilt offering for, for purification. We're going to get to all these eventually. I know. Woohoo! Yeah. <laughs> Um, but, but today we're just going to look at the first three. Um, so God said to Moses, tell the people, when any of you presents an offering of cattle to the Lord, you shall choose your offering from the herd or from the flock. Your offering is a burnt offering from the herd. You shall make your offering a male without blemish. You shall, shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting for acceptance in your behalf before the Lord. So this line here, it says, um, when any of you, this is the, the, in Hebrew, it's ki adam. Ki means if. Adam is the same word as in Genesis, Adam, Adam and Eve. Adam just means um, generically person. Um, they'll sometimes use adam, sometimes ish, sometimes nefesh, but here it's ki adam. If a person, it could be a man or a woman, so it's not, not just a male thing. If a person presents an offering, that word offering is korban, say, say korban. I say, korban is, is a, a big word in the book of Exodus. And, and the central word we're going to think about today. Um, it, it usually is translated as offering. And um, it's used tons of times in, in, in the book of Leviticus. In fact, there's a, there's a um, Hebrew word for sacrifice and a Hebrew word for offering. Most of the time in these first seven chapters, they don't use sacrifice. This is a key thing. They don't use sacrifice. They use offering. And the sacrifice is really limited to only one of the, the first five things. It's kind of strange for us because we have sort of modern eyes. Anytime in the Bible they kill an animal, we think animal sacrifice. But it's, it's literally not what they call it. And they have a word for sacrifice. They call it an, an offering, which, which kind of makes sense. They call it a, a korban, an offering. If you, I mean, if you and I wanted to do an offering, we, we think money, right? You give money. There's, they don't have money in, in Sinai. They have livestock. So that's their offering, okay? 
So they're not thinking of these as sacrifices. They're offerings. The whole phrase in, in Hebrew is um, vakarib mikem korban. Um, va is you. Karib means um, to bring near. So vakarib means you bring near, or it's brings. You brings, brings when one of you brings near, um, that's, that's vakarib. Then mikem means of you, which is weird syntax, but it just means of the Israelite people, not like the resident aliens living among them. And then korban is, like we said, offering. But, but literally, what korban means, I mean, it's used to say offering, but literally what it means is the brought near thing. The brought near thing. It's kind of weird because like the first word here and the last word in this phrase, you can kind of see karib and korban here. You can see karib and then korban. They're, you can tell they're, they're sort of related. They're actually the same word. Um, karib is the verb brings near. Korban is a noun for a bringing near thing. That's literally what it means. That's what the offering is. The thing that is brought that brings them near. Which, coming near, this is, this is the whole problem for the people of God, right? So, va, va karib is the act of bringing near. It's, it's a verb. And korban is the actual um, thing brought, the bringing near thing. And it's a noun. So this is whole, this whole phrase, ki adam yakarib mikem korban, is if a person, you, brings near of you, of the Israelite people, the bringing near thing. That's, that's literally how it reads in Hebrew. So, so korban, to make korban, is you bringing near a bringing near thing. Now, think about this for a second, because I think it, it makes so much more sense now to me in, in the kind of weird Hebrew syntax than in, in English. Korban is an offering, a bringing near thing. So to make korban is you bringing near the bringing near thing, something that brings you near to God when coming near to God scares the tuna salad out of you, right? Th this is it. I mean, that's what an offering is in Leviticus, why, you know, why do you need this bringing near thing? Because, well, I mean, up to now, God has only been available to Moses, and then at the top of this mountain, where a cloud would come down, and it would lightning and thunder, and everybody's like, I'm glad it's Moses up there, and not us. And now this God has moved into the center of the camp, and is doing the cloud, and the thunder, and the lightning, like right there, where everyone can see it all the time. And so, so Moses, God says, go tell him, if anyone wants to draw near, just bring a bringing near thing with you, a korban, an offering. So the offerings are just ways to draw near to God without fear. And it, it is, in essence, arbitrary. It's just drawn from the culture of the day. These are just the normal ways. When people, you know, we go to church, we sing songs and do communion or whatever. Like, they killed animals and brought offerings, right? It's just the normal stuff of the day. We talked about this. Leviticus is always using just the cultural stuff from that day, ancient Near Eastern ritual worship. But then God just says, okay, we'll work with that. And God flips and changes the meaning of it to shape them differently. So for instance, when the, when the pagan gods had a korban, they had it for lots of different reasons, like to feed the gods. Most of the gods needed to eat. 
um, to placate gods, keep them happy, to ask for favors, like victory in battle, to enhance the god's power, because it was like elf with the sleigh. The more people who believe, the more powerful the god is. And some of you got it. Um, to, or or to, to, to seek forgiveness if, if this god is holding you guilty. None of those reasons apply to Yahweh in this korban, this offering. Yahweh doesn't need to eat. Like, there's this one time in the Old Testament where he's like, if I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you guys, right? Doesn't need placating, doesn't want sycophants, doesn't need help with power. And the children of Israel, it's clear, are the ones who have a problem with guilt coming to God, not God. And so the purposes of Korban, for them, they're flipped. It's to, it's to call them out from under all that stuff. So there's a sense in which these korban don't work on God. They work on us. Their whole purpose is to help fearful human beings begin to draw near to God. So God gives them these detailed instructions for how to feel okay in approaching God. And we'll just embed these practices with layer upon layer of meaning. And in every action that is required of them, God is teaching them the motions of how to be human. It's wax on, wax off the whole time, drawing humanity out of hiding and back into relationship with the divine. That's Leviticus. It stands at the center of the Torah, the most important spot. Okay, back to the text. If your offering, korban, is a burnt offering, the word translated burnt offering is ola, which means ascent, um, because Ola meant, and Ola was complete, they burned up everything, it just all went up to, in the smoke, right, on the altar, so it's ascending to God, ascent, Ola. That's, this whole first offering, chapter one, is the Ola, burnt offering, and there's this repetition of three different kinds of Ola they can do, verse three, the, the offering is from the herd, like a cow, Offer a male without defect. Verse 10, if it's from the flock, sheep or goats, offer a male without defect. And then verse 14, if the offering is an offering of birds, and hopefully you can kind of see um, it goes in descending order of expense, how expensive it is. So, so the rich would offer a cow, the middle class, a sheep or goat, the poor, a bird. And how this differs from like pagan worship is the poor are cut in on the deal here. They can actually afford an offering. Anybody could get a hold of a bird. And each time they're told to bring a male without defect. Why a male? Um, there's this rabbi, Jacob Milgram, who I'm reading through this with. Um, he's a Jewish Bible scholar. He says, the likely reason is the male is economically the more expendable. <laughs> Which is great. A, a female, you know, can only have one offspring a year. Um, one male can work a whole entire herd of females in the, in the flock or in the herd. So males are expendable and cheaper. And so this was kind of just a concession to the economic realities. Um, so you could bring a male. Why a male without defect? That word without defect is in Hebrew is tamim, which means um, entirely whole, like sound in mind and body, complete, healthful. In the, the, you know, Septuagint is the Greek version of the, of the Hebrew Bible. And in, in, in that, the, the word they use is teleos, which means um, it's the aim, the goal, the end in mind, 
the finished product, the goal for which something was created. It's actually the same word Jesus uses in Sermon on the Mount when he says, be perfect, as your Father in heaven is, is perfect. That's teleos. And so, so tamim, this be blameless, it really doesn't mean like, like never doing anything wrong, you know what I mean? Like not guilty of some kind of, you know, misbehavior. It means, um, tamim means um, not malfunctioning. It means a thing just is what it's supposed to be. It serves its intended purpose. It's whole. It's sound. It's complete. So why would something like that matter? Well, it's partly, um, of course, to keep them from being stingy with their offerings, right? Like, don't bring something that's all, like, can't walk and it's cross-eyed or whatever, you know? But there's, there's a deeper reason, and we'll, we'll talk much more about this next week. We'll get into it deeply. But for now, at least part of why it matters that the animal is tamim without defect is that God is trying to teach them how to make distinctions between things that are fully alive as themselves and things that are not, things that are pretending or things that are not existing as themselves and therefore are not fully alive. He's trying to teach them to make that distinction through the animals. Because ultimately what, what God is after is people who are fully alive as people, as human beings. And so God says, you've got to learn to make this distinction between animals that are all they should be and, and aren't. And if you get the difference there, maybe you'll be able to do it with human beings. And when, then when you're a tamim without defect, you'll know that the ultimate goal here of being human, of humanness that's whole and complete, is that you'll be in full relationship with God at one moment, right? Atonement. Psalm 15 actually talks about this. Using that same word tamim, it says, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? They're talking about this tent, by the way, the tabernacle. Who may live on your holy mountain? They're talking about this Sinai mountain. The one whose walk is tamim, blameless. And so... So they're going to learn from their livestock in these offerings something that they can then apply to their own lives, growing more and more tamim as, as human being means drawing near to this sacred tent. How are you going to get near the sacred tent? A korban, a bringing near thing. And all of this is about a relationship to the divine. All right, let's keep going. Verse 3, you shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting. For acceptance in your behalf before the Lord, you shall lay a hand upon the head of the burnt offering, that it may be acceptable in your behalf and at one moment for you. And the bull shall be slaughtered before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall offer the blood, dashing the blood against all the sides of the altar, which is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. We'll talk more about these, some of the symbolism in these next week, especially the laying on hands kind of thing. But what I want to notice now is where. It, this happens. It mentions twice. It's at the entrance of the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, the mishkan. And the way they've set this up, if you remember from last year, it's been a while. It's been more than a year since we talked about this. But um, the tabernacle is set up in such a way that when you approach with your, uh, it has a big gate around it or fence. You come through the fence and what you would see is this huge blue and red curtain with two cherubim sewn on it. And between you and the curtain would be the altar with this perpetually burning fire on it blocking your way. 
So you'd come in, and what you would see is this big fire, and right behind it, these, these cherubim, which is um, exactly what Adam and Eve saw on their way out of the garden. Genesis 3.24 says, He placed on the east side of the garden cherubim and a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. This is what the, lets them not get back into, into Eden. It's, it's the gate to Eden. That's the visual that you see when you show up to the tabernacle. And this is, this is intended. It's kind of this recreation of the gateway back into fellowship with God, where you walk with God in the cool of the day and talk about your life as they did in the beginning. And so God's bringing them back in, into fellowship. There's a bunch of these allusions to Genesis and creation, what it's all for in this desire to be together. Like there are all these lists of seven things they all allude to the seven days of creation. Like there are seven parts to the instruction on how to build the tent of meeting. And the seventh one is about, the seventh of the seven is about Sabbath, just like in Genesis, which is the seventh day. In Leviticus, there are seven commands on how to carry out, out these first five sacrifices. There are seven um, actions for the priest's ordination. There's a seven-day waiting period for bodily impurities. There are seven ritual cleansings for the Day of Atonement that all culminate in then a seven-day festival. This is, this is all intended to kind of say, hey, we're, remember the creation thing. We're headed back there. That's where you're bringing near is, is bringing you near there. Okay, so let's keep going. So that's, that's the Olah, the burnt offering. Chapter two is about the minha, the grain offering. When a person presents an offering of meal to the Lord, offering, the offering shall be of choice flour. The offerer shall pour oil upon it, lay frankincense on it. So first you have to bring choice flour, finest flour. Most flour in those days was like coarse. It was whole wheat at best. And to make the finest flour, they had machinery that could really do this. You had to do it by hand. You had to grind it by hand. It took forever. So this was, this was an extravagance. Um, and that's what they had to bring. Why? Because they're making these distinctions, right? Between the good stuff and the not good stuff. And they're learning in this. There's no shortcuts to becoming tamim, which we all know, right? You measure discipleship in decades, grinding down our rough edges. Then you bring the oil. Also has meaning. Oil is what you anoint people with, like priests, later on kings and, and prophets. Um, it signals there's this set-apartness, the oil does. And, and then you lay incense on the fire. I, I had never had this thought before, but you know, incense is wood that's been just pulverized. They do sage or cedar or teak wood, just crush it, grind it, um, it's just beaten and pulverized and molded under pressure. I mean, they put wood through the ringer to become incense. And then they infuse it with oils and perfumes so that it burns really, really slowly and just gives off this essence, this aroma to the world. That's, that's the second offering, the minha. And then chapter three, the shalamin. This is a lot, um, it, when I studied it, it reminds me a lot of commun communion. It's, it's a common meal. They would come to church, come to 
Mishkan, come to the holy place and have a meal together. So um, it's a sacred meal celebrating peace. You can actually see in Shalamim, it's kind of close to Shalom. They're, they're related by their root. So like if, it, if a sick child gets healthy, um, if, a, if a broken relationship is repaired, or just life itself seems sweet and whole and full and good, you would bring a Shalamim to the tent of meeting and let it be your korban. So you would cook it on the altar, basically, and then eat it with your family and your friends and the, and the priest. You'd share it with the priest and whoever was around or whoever you had invited. You would come bring this thing, and it's, it's weird. You bring your your offering, which is we think of as sacrifice, and then you cook it at church and you eat it. It's like all at the same place. That's the Shalomim. And here's the thing about, about these three, first three, chapters one, two, and three. None of these are required. They're all voluntary expressions of gratitude to God. Which is really quite remarkable if you think about it, especially given sort of the way we, we view Leviticus, most of us. It just has this reputation for being very harsh and burdensome. But Leviticus, if you actually read it, it doesn't begin with laws and judgment and harsh condemnation. It begins with these spontaneous offerings of gratitude for how good life is. And I know they're, they're still in the desert, in the wilderness, and they're, I mean, they're going to struggle because growing up is, is a struggle. But you just know there, there were times over and over when they would remember back to Egypt and the life they had as slaves and think about the Pharaoh who killed all their firstborn sons, when they remembered what it was like to live under the lash. And then they would think of, you know, in light of that violence and and cruelty, they would look around and, and see their own kids and think, oh my gosh, like, their future, their future is is good. Can you imagine the, the gratitude? And they were reaching out. They're like, we, sh- we should thank Yahweh, the one who brought us out. But they're all scared to go near Yahweh. So they need a, a bringing near thing, a korban. What do you do when you find yourself overwhelmed with gratitude? Come to the entrance of the tent of meeting with your bringing near thing. And th- this God um, who rescued you from Egypt has now also made a way for you to come near and not be afraid. You lift up your offering. um, The olah, the burnt offering, just rises to the heavens in the smoke. And the the idea is that making this offering of gratitude will shape you, will shape your soul, and teach you a little bit about what it means to be fully human. Tamim. That's how the book of Leviticus begins. Pretty cool, right? Not with the instructions to like, follow under fear of death, not with judgment for things they've done wrong, not with condemnation for their fear, for their failings, not with lightning bolts striking them down, but rather with God making this way um, to help them come near with a, this bringing near thing, this korban and offering. Just in, in the beginning, the first three, it's just gratitude, just thanks, joy. Leviticus, um, in each of these, we won't read all of them, but 
over and over when they do this, it has this little line that says, and this shall be a sweet aroma to Yahweh, to the Lord. And, and that's, that's kind of how that completes the picture. You do this, and then God says, you know, I really like this when you do this. It's a sweet aroma to God. It's pleasing because God wants humans who are fully human. And, and so this action is, is, a, is human, as human is meant to me. It's humane. It's humanizing these offerings to draw near to God with gratitude for being alive, just the goodness of being part of the story. And I think this is a powerful insight here right at the beginning, that the first step toward wholeness is gratitude. I I read uh, a couple of times these articles about how um, gratitude, what it does to us, just like the health benefits. There's actually some research um, that cracks me up that says if if you will smile when you're like depressed, and stressed out, even if it's just mechanical, just like fake, like, you know, beauty pageant style, even a forced smile. In fact, one study had people put like a pencil in their mouth like this, and it activates the muscles that make you smile. That's all they did was grip a pencil in their, in their mouth when they're depressed. Just that action reduces like stress and depression. They, they can use biofeedback and, and prove it. It does things like even a fake smile or a mechanical thing with just a thing in your mouth. Um, it, it um, raises mood, relieves stress levels, boosts the immune system, lowers blood pressure, releases endorphins, releases serotonin. It, I mean, it, it actually kind of gives me the freaks that our soul, our soul responds so much to what we do with our bodies. That's Leviticus, man. These movements, these actions, they're, they're not to placate a God. That's the pagan thing. They're to shape human beings. And God begins with, with gratitude. I, I made this friend through um, Good Faith Network, Rabbi um, David Glickman. He's actually going to come and teach. We're setting the, the dates. I think it's going to be a Tuesday night in August. He's going to come teach on Leviticus. It's going to be cool. But we met up a few weeks ago to talk about Le- Leviticus, and he was talking about gratitude. And he was um, laughing at his own people. You know how you can laugh at your own people most of all. And he was laughing at the way they, the, the Jews just bless everything. That's what he said. We just bless everything. And we have a, and he was laughing. We have thousands of these blessings, he said. Blessings for food, for hunger, for wine. There are five specific categories of blessings for five different kinds of drinks. Categories of drinks. Like, there's, a, there's a blessing for changing your child's pants, like diapers. Um, for eating your vegetables, um, for hearing good news, for bad news. To, for, there are blessings for certain smells, particular smells, blessings for sights and sounds, for new experiences, for saying goodbye. There's blessings for waking up like the Modi Anna. I thank you, living and enduring king, for you have graciously returned my soul within me. Great is your faithfulness. That's how they wake up. The blessing for going to sleep, the hashu, um, the hashkivinu, um, lie us down, Lord, our God, in peace, and raise us up again, our ruler in life. There's, there's actually a blessing for going to the bathroom. There's a Jewish blessing for going to the bathroom. It's called the, um, the Asher Yatzer. Blessed are you, O God, ruler of the world, who created man in wisdom with numerous orifices and spaces. 
I'm not making this up. It is known before you that if one of them should open when it ought to close or close when it should open, we would cease to exist. Blessed are you. Isn't that great? <laughs> to bless, this is what Rabbi Glickman was saying. To bless is to draw near to God through the thing you're blessing. It becomes a bringing near thing when you pronounce blessings, a conduit of the divine. It becomes a korban. That's really cool. He's like, we'll bless anything for this reason because when we do, it becomes just lit up like the tent. So this is what I want to do. I want to close here with a little exercise. I just want you to, in, to imagine that the children of Israel are here. They're with us. And um, only now we're not in their wilderness, we're in our wilderness, the one in our society, which should not be hard to imagine. And, and imagine that in this, God sometimes feels silent, also not hard to imagine, and maybe a little intimidating. And that our lives seem precarious and a little fragile. And now imagine look around, that this very room is, is our, our tabernacle. And they're here with us, like they're showing us how to do this. And it's our, it's our mishkan, our tent of meeting. And it's constructed to facilitate worship just by its, its very form. So the walls are made of solid stone that mimic the temple walls. The wooden beams and the lines draw our eyes toward the center, toward the heavens, to this window. It's at the center at the highest point in, in the room. And above the window, you have to look at this from outside, from the parking lot or the street or something, there is a pyramid on the top, right, that symbolizes, reminding us that we have all come through Egypt, through bondage of some kind. And imagine that the, the architect really designed the room and the window at the top to, to do this to us, to draw our eyes toward the heavens as we gather. And then imagine God looking down on us, seeing us as we really are, which is unnerving. A God who knows our every thought, every thought. But still we come out of hiding every week and stand under this window and invite God and then, then imagine that some crazy congregation came along and installed a stained glass window in, in the opening, and they used a Jewish artist named Chagall, who was a refugee in America for, for a time, fleeing his own kind of pharaoh, the, the Nazi regime, and that America saved him, and so he, he um, made these windows as a gift of gratitude and named them the American windows with a dove representing the spirit and the sun there and the, and the scriptures, the Ten Commandments signifying God's presence with God's people and even a Statue of Liberty. I don't know if you can all see it. It's there. Um, this invitation to immigrants and huddled masses. And this seemed fitting for the church, so they put it in there. And then imagine that we, that we gather just each week in this room with our eyes looking up toward that window, wondering if, if God can see us and wondering if we can see God. 
although sometimes it's hard to do. But still we gather and we stare into the light. And we wonder if God can keep the darkness at bay and shine God's light upon us, wondering what our lives might mean if God could lead us. Wondering if we could maybe be used to push back the darkness of the world a little bit. And then imagine that we would gather and sing songs of praise and thanksgiving each week, that the sound of our voices would just rise through the window toward the heavens and would become a sweet aroma to God. And then imagine that one day we read Leviticus 1 through 3 about the Ola, the Minha, and the Shalamim, and our kooky pastor decided we should do a burnt offering, a real life burnt offering in a non-denominational Protestant church, and then he brought a live goat up front. No, we're not. Slay it before God, right? Yeah. Of course, you don't really have to imagine it, but I'm just saying it that way because that's the whole point is to shape the imagination and to help us try to see that we're still doing this, what they were doing. We do it differently because we live in a different time with different rituals, but we're still doing this, trying to catch a glimpse of the world as God imagines it, trying to learn what it means to be human and how to come fully alive, Tamim. And I wonder what would happen if we started with this idea that when we come, when we approach this tent of meeting, we have to bring a korban, a bringing near thing. And it's just yours, it's your own offering of gratitude to God. And so this is what I want us to do. I invite you just where you are to close your eyes for a moment. Close your eyes and just take a deep breath and find a place of reverence inside you. And I want to ask you to just draw to mind something for which you are grateful. Truly grateful. And it can be anything at all. Just in your own heart and your own soul, just think about what are you truly grateful for? And, and try to say in your soul, why does it matter to you? What does it mean to you? Just hold that thing you're thinking of. Hold it in your heart here in this moment of reverence before God. And think of that as, as your um, korban, your bringing, your bringing near thing, the thing that brings you near to God and bless it in, in, your, in your heart and your soul. All right, okay, you can look up now. So this is what I want us to do. So we're gonna, we're gonna receive communion. And when we do, we're gonna, we're gonna make a burnt offering, unsanctioned by any official religious body. Um, so I'm sure we're doing it wrong. But we're gonna do a, a korban. So this is what I want you to do. Um, you'll come forward just like normal to receive communion. And after you're done receiving it, you'll come up here to the altar, our altar, and you'll grab incense and pick a, pick a candle and light the incense in case you never smoked weed or went to a head shop. Um, this is how you do it. I'm not saying I have. 
Um, so you get, it, you get it burning, see it burning, and then you blow, blow it out. And then bring it up to our makeshift altar in, this, in the center of the room under the window and just put it in there. And, and as you do this, you're thinking of the thing that you gave thanks for, okay? And we're just going to uh, see if we can make the fire department come. I mean, see if we can do a, do a korban. Um, so we're going to come forward for um, communion. When you're, you're done with communion, after you receive it, if you want to, you don't feel like you have to, come forward to the, to the altar and grab something and, and then walk forward with, with gratitude, naming the gratitude for yourself and, and make, your, make your korban, your ola, your burnt offering before the Lord. Are you game? All right, let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for the day and for um, the vaikra, the call from inside the tent. And we lean in and try to listen and hear today. And we thank you that you want us to come near and you give us um, bringing near things, things to draw us in. And I pray that our offering will be pleasing to your sight. Amen. I invite you to stand and we're going to receive communion. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and broke it and passed it around to his guys and said, um, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took a cup and blessed it, passed it around. They drank it and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, a new deal between humanity and God. Every time you get together, he said, Eat this bread, drink this cup, receive my life into your life and become made out of the stuff I'm made out of. And so this is why we receive communion every week and why we invite everyone to join us at the table. If you would just pray with me a blessing upon the bread and the cup. Lord, we do ask your blessing on this sacred meal. May it be to us a means of your grace spiritual food and drink and as we share it together and receive it into our bodies may we receive you once again come and live inside us make us new from the inside out and then send us out into the world to be salt and light and let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness all to the glory of Jesus Christ our risen Savior who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit one God now evermore.